0: Welcome to Navarra Live. I am noticeably not Michael Walker, who is at home with the flu. Again, I'm Moira Lady MacLean. And tonight we're going to be joined by Dave Carr, a UNITE organizer and critical care nurse. Dave, thank you so much for joining me.
1: A pleasure, an absolute pleasure
0: we will also be covering Rishi Sunak's mathematical miscalculation. There'll be more on the next round of Nurses' Strikes, which I'm excited to talk about with Dave. And another look at the upcoming local elections, which mm, stormy weather ahead for the Tories. As always, we want to hear your comments about our topics this evening. How do you think the local elections are going to pan out? Let us know by tweeting on the hashtag NavarraLive or in the chat. Now, before we get to it, if you watched our shows last week, you'll have heard that we've launched a dedicated podcast feed for Navarra Live. And also that this show has shot up the Spotify rankings for UK news podcasts. Well, at the end of last week, we were in the number two slot behind Alistair Campbell's podcast, which, no, is not about being a war criminal. That was on Friday. Let's take a look at where we are now. Look At that, we have hit the number one slot on Spotify's news podcasts. But it's not just the news category though, because we're also placed at number four for UK podcasts in general, beneath the likes of Joe Rogan and Stephen Bartlett. What illustrious company. Thank you so much, everyone, for heading there, hitting follow and having a listen. Shall we get on to the first story? Rishi Sunak is having a bad day, worse than mine when I was called in last minute to cover the Monday show. What was supposed to mark the bonanza launch of his new plan to increase mathematical literacy across the UK has been hijacked about, by questions about a potential political miscalculation. Once again, the Prime Minister has found himself in hot water over his wife's business interests. Sunak is now being investigated by the Parliament's ethics watchdog over whether he failed to properly declare a conflict of interest when he and Chancellor Jeremy Hunt launched a new childcare policy in the spring budget. A reminder of that new policy, to try and tackle a shortage of childminders from autumn 2023, new signups to the profession will get an incentive payment of £600. Now, this rises to £1,200 for childminders who join through a private agency, but only six agencies have been rubber-stamped by the government to take part in this incentive, incentive scheme initially. Even in March, this raised questions – during a Commons Liaisons Committee session, Labour MP Catherine McKinnell quizzed Sunak about how those six agencies were selected.
2: There are only six childcare agencies, and they're advertised on the government's website. What conversations have, have the government had with these agencies
0: about these proposals?
3: I'll, I'll happily write back to you and the and the committee on uh, on exactly what conversations I had and, and the rationale for that. The rationale policy, that the use the of
0: taxpayers' money to give double bonuses to sign up with private agencies. Well, I, I think it's a reflection the of the
3: the fact that they're through intermediaries, so there are additional costs, and ultimately we just want to make sure the policy is effective in bringing additional people into the system. Because I think and there's as, nothing as the prime minister
2: said, wishes to declare in respect of that.
3: No, I mean all my all my disclosures are declared in the in the normal in the normal way.
0: That was Rishi Sunak in March, saying he had nothing to declare when it came to the lucky private agencies being handed taxpayer money for signing up new childminders. But it quickly emerged this wasn't strictly true. Two days after Sunak sat in that committee hearing, it was uncovered that his billionaire wife, Akshata Murti was listed as a shareholder in one of the six agencies that would benefit from the bonus. Sunak then said he declared his wife's interest to the cabinet office, which isn't always available immediately to MPs or for others to see. And it doesn't help that the government has failed to update the register of ministerial interests for almost 12 months. Sunak's response failed to satisfy Catherine McKinnell, who raised this issue with the Ethics Commissioner Daniel Greenberg, and he has now decided to investigate further. It's unlikely to result in any bombastic charges, however. From The Guardian, there is this. One of Greenberg's main decisions will be whether this interpretation of the interest regulation is correct. It is possible for breaches related to registering an interest to be resolved by so-called recertification, in which the commissioner and the MP concerned agree how it can be properly registered. While this would spare Sunak potential scrutiny by the Standards Committee, which oversees the work of the Commissioner, it would require Number 10 to concede an error. While failure to register interest can be viewed as a relatively minor infraction, if the Commissioner did find Sunak at fault, it could be seen as a more serious matter given he did not just omit to mention an interest, but told the Liaison Committee that he did not have one. Not career-ending stuff, per se, but more embarrassment for Sunak, especially as he's positioned himself as Mr Rules in comparison to Boris Johnson's Sleaze King. One might start to think... It's hard to be the UK's richest prime minister in history and married to a billionaire without crossing a few ethical lines, unknowingly or not. Now, these headlines have further derailed Sunak's stunningly interesting maths policy launch, which was already not going amazingly. Sunak wants to make maths education compulsory for all school pupils up until the age of 18. As part of working towards that goal, today he announced there would be a review into maths education in England.
3: Parents and teachers listening to this will want to know what that means for our children today. So let me tell you, we're in the process of making maths more accessible, building our children's confidence so that they don't fear maths. We're creating more sector-specific content that can excite young people about the relevance of maths for the careers that they aspire to, to help teachers bring maths to life in the classroom, from building sets for school plays to calculating the angles of free kicks or the speed of a Formula One car. We're extending our maths hubs, unique partnerships of expert schools that support maths teaching. And we're strengthening maths in primary schools, including with a new fully funded professional qualification for those that are teaching it. But we also need to address a very specific problem that's causing us to fall behind the rest of the world. We're one of the few developed countries where young people don't routinely study some form of maths up to the age of 18. They do it in Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Finland, Japan, Norway, and America. Why should we accept any less for our children? Of course we shouldn't. That's why I set out in January that we're going to change the way our system works so that everyone in our country will study some form of maths all the way to 18. But let me be absolutely clear. I am not saying that the answer is A-level maths for everyone. But we do need to work out the maths our young people should study. So we're going to look at what 16 to 18-year-olds around the world are learning. And we're going to listen to employers and ask them what they say the math skills are that they need. And that's why today I'm appointing a new expert group who will help us identify the core maths content that our 16 to 18 year olds need and whether we need a new specific qualification to support that. But to repeat, that will not be A-level maths for all.
0: Sounds sensible. Unfortunately, the plan is already under fire. To make it work would require recruiting a lot more teachers, something Sunak himself acknowledged. But this is difficult because teaching is a profession currently under pressure due to 13 years of cuts to resources and pay. In fact, teachers are going on strike just next week after rejecting a, quote, insulting government pay offer that the NEU said up to 58% of schools would have to make cuts to afford meanwhile the teaching recruitment crisis is so acute the government is launching a pilot scheme to recruit specialist teachers from abroad non-UK trainees and teachers of languages and physics are being offered 10000 pounds from this autumn onwards to relocate to england and teacher vacancies in england are currently 93% higher than they were pre-pandemic teachers have suffered a 12% Real term pay cuts since 2003. And Sunak was obviously grilled about these strikes in his Maths Review press conference.
4: Chris Mason, BBC News. You talk today about an aspiration, but with very little detail. Uh, And yet, the context is one where, for many pupils and parents, there's going to be further disruption to their education with strikes coming up, as well as the prospect of strikes going on for months and months ahead in the NHS. Shouldn't the strikes and sorting them out quickly be your priority?
3: All right. Thanks, Chris. So lots in there. Let, let's, the first thing to say is let's talk about what's going on in schools and uh, there'll be some teachers here. And uh, the first thing I want to say, and Gillian would, would echo this, is that I, I think our teachers do an incredible job. And you probably heard from what I said earlier. I think delivering a world class education system is about the most important thing that we can do for our children's futures and for our country. And that starts with having the best teachers. I mean, all the research tells you that, our own experience as parents tells you that. The most transformative thing for a child's education is the quality of the teaching. And that's why it's right that we respect, we revere and we support our teachers. And I'm so grateful to them for the incredible job they do. Um, and that's why we worked really hard to find a way to come to a, what I thought was a reasonable and fair settlement on pay. And it represented about an 8% increase for most teachers, around a 13% increase For new teachers, taking their starting salary up to £30,000 over the course of the next year, which is something that we've committed to do a couple of years ago, and I'm pleased that we're able to deliver that. But it's not also just about the money. One of the things that we hear a lot from teachers is about workload and finding ways to reduce that. So what we'd actually worked out with the unions, um, and Julian did a great job, is identifying ways to reduce the workload um, by about five hours a week. And so, put together, we thought that that was a a reasonable and fair package in the circumstances. Um, so, obviously, I'm disappointed, and as I said, I, I don't want our kids' education to be disrupted. I think no one wants to see that. Our door is always open, and we you know we continue to hope that we can find a way through. Um, but as I say, that that was the, that's the situation on that.
1: I've got to say, looking at that clip, it's like looking at one of these um, candidates for the Apprentice. I mean, you would you trust that guy? You know, if he was selling you a a, a fairy cake in the um, it, you know, in in a market as one of those tasks for that game show, I mean, I, I just can't take him seriously. But in terms of doors open for the teachers, I mean, you know, we had to take a lot of strike action to get doors open in the NHS, and I just think it's it's inconceivable i mean it's almost like a parallel universe where they talk about world class education when we've got thousands of teacher vacancies the teachers are going out on strike our schools are falling apart you know our young people's education is is being devastated by you know pandemics lack of teachers and you know they're talking about maths how many math teachers are we short in this country i mean you know, I, I just can't take that kind of questioning seriously. I mean, you know, they they managed me in terms of maths. I managed to give £700 million to the rich during COVID. I mean, I think maybe we should get someone to start working some percentages out on how we can retrieve some of that money back from the rich so we can start paying the teachers to start teaching the the kids maths. But um, I don't trust these adding up one little bit at all.
0: I somehow feel like that won't be on the curriculum Rishi Sunak envisions it. Um, speaking of that these not taking these plans seriously given that it's really unlikely the government's ever going to realize this plan there's an er- le- there's an erection on the horizon there's an election on the horizon um, how should we view these sort of policy announcements Should we take them seriously or are they just filler distractions
1: when you work in the NHS or if you're a teacher or if you're working in any other aspect of industry the, the reality of your life is utterly utterly different to the to, to the rubbish that comes out of Sue next mouth so when he's talking about world-class education and teaching that bears no reality to, to to the world that most teachers live in most pupils live in most parents live in you know when he talks about world-class nhs system it bears no reality to to, to what everyone's experiencing so it, we have to suffer this nonsense over the mainstream media with these slick suited people like Sunak, rich as grossest, telling us what a wonderful world it is. And then you actually go back to your normal life. And what you see is what we know is that the wheels are falling off. We're living in a failed state. You know, our people are suffering really badly and this cannot go on. I think they're going to get absolutely hammered at the local elections.
0: And I for one would love to see it. Let's move on to the next story. Fresh nurses' strikes are on the horizon. On Friday, the Royal College of Nursing rejected the government's pay offer to its members and announced a further 48 hours of strike action over the May bank holiday. But that is unlikely to be the end of widespread industrial action by our nurses. And indeed, it could stretch on for months after RCN General Secretary Pat Cullen pledged to ballot members for a mandate to pursue further concessions from the government. Speaking to Laura Koonsberg,
5: Cullen was asked about the government's response. You've had a letter from the health secretary, Steve Barclay, just in the last half hour. You've called for urgent talks. What's his response to you been?
2: Well, it's interesting that it's taken the health secretary days to respond to my letter, uh, and I get it half an hour before I'm coming on your programme. So I'd ask, I wonder why, first of all. And that's not about being disrespectful to me. It's been disrespectful to over five hundred thousand nurses that I represent. What um, has he fact, said? Though? In fact, what it says very little. Laura. Uh, It actually says very little. He spent longer writing in the sun today than he has responding to our half million nurses. And what does it say? It says that he believes the bonus that they have put on the table is enough and nurses should accept that and continue to work in the high risk areas that they're working with the understaffing that they've got. And he's asking you to pause the strike action though. Will you do that? No, our nurses will absolutely not do that. We have strike action for the end of this month, beginning of May, and then we will move immediately to ballot our members. And if that ballot is successful, it will mean further strike action um, right up until Christmas. Now, the person that can stop that, and the people that can stop that is Steve Barclay and the ministers, and indeed the Prime Minister. And I would urge them again today that add to the money that they've put on the table, respect nursing, respect the health service, and let's get a resolution to this. And the nurses' action from
0: 30th of April to 2nd of May will see a significant uptick in the seriousness of the strike. For the first time, nurses in emergency departments and cancer wards will also down tools. Cullen had this message for patients who might be affected.
2: The patients are getting a raw deal from this government, have done so for a long number of years, as have nurses. Tens of thousands of vacant posts. But what I want to say to every patient that's listening this morning, the health service is in a crisis, a crisis caused by this government, not our nurses. This government can't say in one hand, we value nurses so much that they shouldn't go on strike, and then we don't value, value them enough to pay them. And that's why we're in the crisis we're in. But... but- but nurses will not turn their backs on patients. When we are on strike at any time, we've had six days so far, nurses made sure at all times that patient safety was at the core of all decision-making. We'll continue to do that. And should there be a major incident or a particular incident that nurses um, will have to deal with during a strike, they will return immediately, as they will have done from picket lines but right throughout but for anybody, I want to press you again on the specifics
5: of taking a different kind of strike action, a more radical strike action, where there won't be the same kind of protections that there have been before. Do you accept by any reasonable logic that this strike will
2: put patients in more danger? It will create more risk for patients. And I have to say back to you, Laura, patients are at risk every single day in this health service. not just on days when nurses are taking strike action. You admit They're taking strike action worse. to highlight these risks. They are absolutely taking strike action to highlight the risks. And not every nurse will be not available for work on a day of strike. There'll be many, many nurses that don't belong to our union who will continue to work. It won't be that we'll find our hospitals with no nurses. And indeed, there'll be nurses like Greg who will not take strike action. And that is absolutely their right and we'll respect that.
0: Later in the programme, another Greg was on, Conservative Party Chair Greg Hans, who is distinctly not a nurse, and he was asked how the government was going to fix the situation.
5: The point, I think, for our viewers watching this morning is what the government is going to do about it and what the consequences will be for the country. And if you look also at the consequences for the prime minister, for your boss, Rishi Sunak, one of his main promises is that he's going to get waiting lists down. Now, how on earth is that gonna happen if you've got a series of strikes in the health well, service?
6: That is why Steve Barclay today has written uh, to the RCN mm-hmm. outlining- mm-hmm. Uh, Saying uh,
5: very little is what Pat Cullen said. Well, I disagree. Not I've not agreeing act,
6: to talks. Uh, I've, I've, read the, the, I've read the letter. Steve's, uh, Steve's door is always open, always open. Um, But we want to see what the other unions have to say, what the other people being balloted have to say about this very, very good offer. And I just stress again, Mm £5,100 for a band 5 nurse, £2,000 into their account uh, by the summer. That is a very, very good offer.
5: But what has happened to waiting lists since Rishi Sunak made that pledge in January?
6: Well, obviously, the strike action has not helped. Uh, We know that we're dealing with the waiting list problem as Mm -hmm. a result of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. which inevitably led to big delays Mm -hmm. in the NHS. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're getting to grips with that. The strikes Mm -hmm. haven't helped, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless, there's a real focus there. Steve Barclay, the Prime Minister, personally involved here Mm -hmm. in making sure that we do what we can to bring down those waiting lists. Well, if he's personally involved, it might
5: might not be making that much difference because the waiting lists have got longer, actually. There's 7.2 million people on an NHS waiting list now in February. That is the highest level that it has ever been. How on earth are you going to get to grips to that? If there's a dispute with the nurses, there's a dispute also with the junior doctors. Don't you have to budge on the strikes if you are going to address that very real problem for members of the public?
6: But we have, we have budged because we have made this very, very good offer. Uh, to all of the unions, to all of the six unions involved. Some are still balancing at the moment. Let's wait and hear their results. But it is a great offer, five thousand. dollars. But 100. the nurses don't
5: think so, Greg Hanson. I mean, our audience will they hear you keep saying it's a fair offer, them. but they voted against it, as was their democratic right to do so as a union. You can agree with it, you can be frustrated with it. Of course, it's legitimate to, to say whatever you want about the result. But they voted no, and this is about the consequences. So again, I'll ask you, we have a record number of people on waiting lists, 7.2 million. How do you think you're going to fix that if industrial disputes are going on in the health service? Or actually, are you gonna give up on that pledge?
6: We're definitely not giving up. Uh, We think it's unreasonable to take this strike action particularly at a time when the other unions are balloting, particularly at a time when Unison, which represents a third of all the staff, accepted it by 74%. That is a big majority in favour of this very fair and reasonable offer.
0: As Hans said there, Unison voted to accept the government's deal with 74% of its members opting in favour of it. However, Unite and GMB are still balloting their members with results expected in about
1: two weeks. When the unions agreed to go into talks with the government with preconditions, and I think it's worth pointing out to people what those preconditions were, you know, Barclay turned around and he said to to, to the health unions, there's no new money on the table. You have to suspend all strike action. We will talk about efficiencies and savings, and you have to recommend any deal we make here to your membership. What that did was it completely took any leverage away from those negotiations for all of the unions. So basically, they went in there with nothing, you know, begging. They've gone from a position of strength and that strike wave growing to, you know, we'll see what we can come out with. And what they came out with was a, a, a wholly inadequate deal, a lump sum, a bribe, a lump sum and a 5% um, deal, which effectively does not face the bri- the main issues that we in nursing and certainly in the BMA are pushing as well as pay, which is that our hospitals are unsafe. And we can't deliver safe services. And you've seen all of these operations being canceled on the waiting list. We have to get the train moving again. We have to get the momentum rolling. And that's what's been lost in this period. We've lost momentum over the strike wave. And it's very, it's like the grand old Duke of York, up, down, up, down. Actually, a lot of our people were demoralized. So for RCN members to reject their leadership, telling them to vote for this deal was extraordinary. And it shows the depth of anger that there is on the wall today. They they go against their leadership, Pat Cullen, telling us that this is a reasonable deal and it's the best we can get through negotiations. In Unite, I can tell you at the moment that it looks like the returns are telling us that this offer is going to be rejected. I can't speak for the GMB. And of course, what's happened with, with Unison is that they have accepted this deal, which has now effectively split some of the health unions. And that's a real problem for us. We've got to learn major lessons for the way we negotiate. our junior doctors, when they went in to to see Barclay, were offered the same preconditions as the um, nurses. And they said, sorry for this, uh, Fox, they said, fuck off, um, make us an offer and we'll talk to you. And I think we need to be a little bit more doctory in that respect. Going forward, the RCN strikes are on. We need to make them as big, as massive, and as effective as possible. That needs to give confidence to the people that do want to fight, that do want to reject this deal, to actually to keep pushing. Because what's at stake here, and I think you know, the people watching this need to understand this, what's at stake is not just paying our pockets. If this deal goes down, for nursing staff it means a lot of us will just say that's enough, we're off. And for the junior doctors it's the hemorrhage will get worse and we will not be able to recover from to our pre-pandemic periods. We will not be able to get those people off the waiting lists and into the hospitals quickly. Those 500 people a week that are currently dying because they can't get into hospital services quickly enough, that will start increasing. And we will look at a two-tier system where people who can afford it, Will go private and that's already happening. So we've got a lot to do. I think that, you know, we've we've had this period of um, you know, demobilization, we've got a remobilization, we've got to equip ourselves. Now, the first and the second of May is going to be a big day. Ask me another question on this. It's gonna be a really big day for all of us.
0: Wow, with an invitation like that, Dave, I understand that your own branch of Unite, there's some news regarding the upcoming RCN strikes. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: I can, and what I can say, and I'm really proud of this, is the the um, the, the staff, the union members of Unite, which is another major union inside the NHS, at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital, voted to strike over pay. And what I can tell you now is, our management have been given notice that when the nurses go out on strike on the first and second of May, the 1,100 Unite members that work at Guy's and St Thomas's, which will include pharmacists, porters, food service assistants. IT technicians as well as nurses, and um, speech and language therapists will be joining them on the picket line. What I can also tell you is that we'll be calling a major demonstration from the uh, St Thomas's site on the 1st of May, on May Day, and we will be also seeking to link up with the BMA and the NEU and anyone else in the public sector that wants to fight against the tourism. We hope that strike and the way we intend to conduct that strike at Guy's and St Thomas's lays down a marker to all of those workers and those Unison members that you know perhaps saw that their union union wasn't prepared to fight. We are prepared to fight the, the workers at Guy's and St Thomas's. Be they nurses, be they doctors, be they every other grade of staff now are prepared to fight over pay, and more importantly, we're prepared to fight over the future of the NHS. So that invitation on on the first of May isn't just to trade unions that are in dispute, it's to every single community cuts group, every single group that wants to fight, brag, every single person in London that wants to say, we believe in the NHS, we believe it's the workers in the NHS that will defend the NHS, we want them outside our hospital at midday on the 1st of May, and we want to say to the Tories, fair and reasonable, that, that offer is not fair or reasonable, the NHS is not safe in your hands, pay up or get out.
0: I think that is fantastic news and resistance. I've got another question for you. In light of Unison's capitulation, let's call it, do you think that members might be persuaded to leave Unison for other unions that would be taking more militant action? I mean militant in the most complimentary fashion possible.
1: I think that what we've always seen is whenever unions fight, people join the unions that are fighting, and we're already seeing that inside Tommy's and inside you know uh, uh, you know all, all of the, all the unions that fight. When the RCN um, won their strike ballots, they went from three hundred and fifty thousand members to five hundred thousand members, half a million nurses in air in the RCN, and I think that. Two things in unison. I think that their leadership has let them down in health. I think it is a a touch of the lions led by donkeys. But I would also want to say this. There are some fantastic people working inside unison that do not like this pay deal and did not want to accept this pay deal. They've been let down by leadership that really hasn't mobilised their strengths and their members inside the union. If those people decide they want to join a union that is fighting, we're not going to stop them. What we want to do is we want to get a decent pay settlement and we want to defend the NHS. And as Malcolm X said, by any means necessary.
0: Also appearing on Koonsberg this weekend was Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting. He had some tough words for the government, but he didn't seem that keen on the nurses either, criticising them for planning to withhold their labour again. That's why Koonsberg asked him
5: this. You said that the nurse's original ask of 19% was unaffordable. Would 10% be affordable?
4: Well, I think what we need is a workforce plan. And the government have promised a workforce mm-hmm. plan because, as I've said before, we've got to see these strikes in the context of retention mm-hmm. of NHS staff. And I think the even bigger risk isn't just that people walk out for more days of industrial action, is they walk out of the NHS altogether. And whether, when you compare pay rates in the NHS to other sectors, including retail, mm-hmm. when you compare social care pay rates, mm-hmm. there's a degree of uncompetitiveness now. So people are walking out so as well as going to other countries. So, so, so would you offer as 10%? With Pat Pullen, I'm not going to sit here on your programme and pluck numbers out of the air and negotiate on air. But
5: that's not plucking numbers out of the air. I mean, our viewers want to get an idea of how Labour would handle it differently. You say very strongly the government's made a mess of it. So how would you fix it? Would 10% be affordable in your view? Well,
4: I wouldn't expect the health secretary to... Uh, make commitments on air now. What I would expect him to do is sit around the table and negotiate, and that's what a Labour government would do. But you've said to do. us
5: previously that 19% was unaffordable. You said that 35% for the junior doctors was unaffordable. So you are happy sometimes to talk about numbers. Um, so I'll ask you again, is 10% affordable? We'll set,
4: out, we'll set out our manifesto policies, which will be fully costed and fully funded this at, is the, the, situation right at here, the next right now. General election. I know, Lauren, that's why the health secretary should be here, but he isn't. And frankly, I'm fed up of coming on programmes and being asked how I... A Labour spokesperson would fix conservative problems tomorrow as if I'm in government tomorrow. I'm not in government tomorrow. The Conservatives are.
0: Fiery. I don't know about you, but I think knowing exactly how much a likely Labour health secretary values one of the most important workforces in the NHS is pretty important. But I'm sorry to hear you're sick of doing your job, whereas we've all been there. Dave, what did you make of West Streeting's response?
1: I just cannot get my head around these politicians, especially from Labour at the moment, being unable to actually nail the reality of what's going on in the NHS. I mean, they have a lot of liaison with trade unions about what's happening um, in the NHS front line. We've got seven point two million one people on the waiting lists now. Three million people over 18 weeks and 379,000 people waiting for over two years for surgery. That shows the extent that the um, crisis in the NHS is affecting patients. There was a King's Fund report recently that said the prolonged funding squeeze between 2008 and 18 combined with years of poor workforce planning, weak policy and fragmented responsibilities, responsibilities meant that staff shortages have become endemic in the NHS to the point that the workforce crisis will be the key limiting factor on efforts to boost NHS activity and tackle the rising backlog of care. That was before COVID. Now, we have got 48,000 vacancies of nurses in the NHS, and I think something like 30,000-plus vacancies of junior doctors in the NHS. Do some Richie maths, Wes. If we can't plug that workforce gap and restore high rates... To what they were before the austerity started biting, we're never going to fix the NHS. I can't see how they fail to to, to to see that, and I just find I just find a lot of these politicians have have got to stop being as slippery as they are. Um, there is a crisis in the NHS. People are dying waiting to get into NHS services. You know, people are flooding out of the NHS, nurses, doctors, and other staff because they just cannot work in these conditions anymore. It is. You know, it would be a tapping for West Street and to say, yes, we have to give restorative pay rises to these groups of workers. We're going to tax the rich to pay for it. It won't, you know, affect inflation. You know, and there you go. They'd be rolling a coach and coaching horses over o- o- over the Tories on their way into 10 Downing Street. If they did that, they just cannot see that.
0: Let's move on to the next story. We are used... To a government that breaks its promises. We've had 13 years of it, but here's yet another one for you. The Tories seem to have conveniently forgotten their pledge to save the lives of mothers and babies. Over the last few years, several studies have shown gross racial inequalities in the maternity care that women in Britain receive. This graph from the BBC shows that between 2014 and 2016, a black woman was five times more likely to die during or immediately after pregnancy than a white woman. The rate of maternal death for Asian and mixed race women was twice as high as for white women in that period. But it's not just maternal death that disproportionately affects black women. This graph is from the ONS, and it shows rates of stillbirth in England and Wales by ethnicity between 2007 and 2019. As you can see, the rate of stillbirths dropped for all groups in that period. But in 2019, a black woman, represented by the light blue line, was almost twice as likely as a white woman, the orange line, to suffer a miscarriage. And Asian women, the dark blue line, had roughly a 50% higher chance of losing their pregnancy before birth. In May last year, the maternal maternal charity Birthrights published the results of a year-long inquiry into racial injustice on maternity wards. And they found this. Healthcare professionals failed to recognize serious medical conditions such as jaundice in black babies because white bodies were considered the norm. Women described racial stereotyping, microaggressions and assumptions leading to distress and trauma. One of the most common experiences was that of black, brown and mixed ethnicity women reporting pain relief being denied or delayed because of racist stereotypes, including black women's perceived ability to tolerate pain and Asian women's perceived inability to cope with pain. Black and brown women reported feeling physically and psychologically unsafe during their care. There were many accounts of women and staff hearing Asian women being referred to as princesses or precious and black women as aggressive or angry. Some women and healthcare professionals shared examples of overt racism, such as hearing staff saying that black women and babies have thick, tough skin, that the ward smells of curry when South Asian families were being cared for, and that Chinese people were dirty. In response to this wall of evidence, the government set up the Maternity Disparities Task Force in February last year. At the time, Minister for Women's Health Maria Caulfield said this. For too long, disparities have persisted, which means that women living in deprived areas or from ethnic minority backgrounds are less likely to get the care they need and, worse, lose their child. We must do better to understand and address the causes of this. The Maternity Disparities Task Force will help level up maternity care across the country, bringing together a wide range of experts to deliver real and ambitious change so we can improve care for all women and I will be monitoring progress closely. The task force pledged to meet, quote, every two months, beginning from March last year, but Caulfield has now admitted it hasn't had a meeting since July last year. That's right. It met just three times before apparently giving up. Almost a year ago, a government spokesperson told the Mirror this. The Maternal Disparities Task Force will convene soon to continue to drive progress in improving access to preconception and maternity care for all mothers and babies. That's quite a change in language of the promise there. A year ago, it was, quote, real and ambitious change to, quote, care for all women, with progress being carefully monitored by the minister. Now it's, quote, improved access. When, soon, inspiring stuff. Dave, is the crisis in maternity care and the racial inequalities linked to the wider crumbling and neglect of the NHS?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I, during the pandemic, um, I was working in critical care, and what we saw then was the disproportionate amount of Black people, you know, affected by by the pandemic. Well, you know, it was so visible and you know during black lives matter where our our, our hospital produce uh, you know was part of a, a big wave driven by our, our, our BAME by nurses their stories about how they were treated as healthcare workers and how they were treated as healthcare users Fits exactly that narrative, and I think what you've got is an NHS now that can't deliver core services safely for anyone. And I think if you are in a minority, uh, and if you are black in the health service, it's going—you it, know—it's going to be reflected in and the report that hor- horrific report that you've just you've just read out. It is not good enough. It is not acceptable, and it isn't good enough for me to sit here and say if the NHS was fully funded, it wouldn't be like that. You know, we have got in. You know, it, it, you know racism throughout our society and that needs to be completely eradicated but you know the, the state of the nhs at the moment makes that really hard and uh, i mean it just it, it breaks my heart seeing these kind of um scenes, these kinds of stories is not acceptable and i think you know to the population of, of our country the, abuse, the health service especially those minorities those vulnerable minorities um it, it, we have this we've got to turn this around i mean it, it's just absolutely horrific
0: Dave, how have you seen or have you seen uh, during your career in healthcare, in a, these inequalities and racism sort of manifest? What, what is it that makes these prevalent in our health service beyond the lack of resources?
1: I'll give you an, a, an example of about how I've started to perceive what happens. I mean, I'm a, I'm a socialist. You know, I've always been an anti-racist. You know, I've always fought against racism. But it's 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 working in the health service and working alongside a really diverse workforce and watching movements like BLM rise up where I've started to become aware of how that impacts on staff so you know our you know our staff report to us black staff report to us how they're spoken to we've seen the the records where if a white say for an example for white nurse uh, makes a drug error and these are examples um, then they may be taken into the office and had a chat with the black nurse makes uh, a, a, the same error. It may be reflected in the disciplinary. You know, if a white nurse raises their voice, um, you know, uh, you know, over and over, it may be seen as that nurse is very assertive. You know, very the black nurse does the same. It's aggressive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, those tropes that we begin to see throughout the NHS. And I think that if you look at all, you know how people are treated inside our society they are treated like that in the NHS so I think there is racism inside the NHS you know if you look at the disciplinaries that are done against black workers they are disproportionate more black staff especially lower graded black staff will be will be treated um, differently because of the colour of their skin I've spoken to my colleagues I've got three nurses um, that are reps um, one's from Saudi one's Indian and one's black and they tell me that if they go out together they get treated differently because of the you know colour of their skin so I think you know it, 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 I think we've got, you know, a society that hasn't dealt with the, the racism, that, that that treats asylum seekers like scum. And those, you know, those people coming over in, in those boats because there's no safe ways in, have got black skins. You know, they're whipping up this hysteria against, um, uh, you know, asylum seekers. And that is reflected on the attacks on our populations and how those people of colour will start perceiving how they're treated, you know, and those institutions, the police you know, that report that you've just read out. I mean, I think we have got real major issues, you know, in our big institutions that we really need to really need to face up to. We're
0: going to continue talking about an institution absolutely riddled with bigotry and bias in our next story. A heads up, uh, we will be discussing sexual assault in this segment. Every day, it feels like there is a new story about some horror committed by serving police officers. And a lot of recent reporting has been focused on London's Metropolitan Police Force. The Met have been under intense scrutiny due to the fallout from the horrific murder of Sarah Everard. The findings of the Casey review in March laid bare the extent of institutional rot at the heart of the Met. And since then, there's been a stream of investigations exposing misconduct within police forces. It's almost like these things have been happening in plain sight for decades, and the mainstream media is only now bothering to once again redirect their spotlight onto exactly how the country's enforcers of law choose to wield their power. But the heat is no longer solely on the Met and scrutiny is starting to be applied to other forces. Today, for example, an officer with Devon and Cornwall Police has been charged with raping a duty while raping a woman while on duty. I just want to take a moment to, like, let the horror of that sink in. Sergeant David Stansbury has been charged with three counts of raping a woman in Plymouth in 2009 and has now been suspended from his duties. But the news of his prosecution dropped at the same time as an exclusive Guardian investigation was published. Other police forces have higher rates of sexual misconduct and racism claims than met, Guardian investigation also reveals stark differences between forces in approaches to recording complaints. Using FOI requests, the Guardian has examined the number of police officers under investigation in forces across the UK for various types of misconduct during a period covering late January 2023 and early February 2023. Here is what they found. Three forces, Essex, Suffolk and Staffordshire, had, by proportion, more officers under investigation due to allegations of racism than the Met, according to the snapshot investigations covering the period of late January and early February. While 30 officers were under investigation in Suffolk, a force of 1,298, over allegations of racism and 37 at Staffordshire, the figure was as high as 150 ses- 57 at Essex Police, according to data released under the Freedom of Information Act. In response to these findings, Essex Police had a rather creative reply. Essex Police said this was because the force comprehensively followed independent Office for Police Conduct, IOPC, guidance that all public complaints around racial discrimination are recorded as an investigation at the point they are lodged. This differs to processes followed by other forces, some of which do not formally record discrimination allegations. A spokesperson for the force, which has more than 3,400 officers said, our approach ensures a better service to the complainant as they receive a comprehensive report in response to their concerns and any issues arising about officer behavior are identified. This does also mean that we would expect our figures to be higher than some of those other forces. Essentially, Essex police are saying their complaints procedure is better than other forces, and that's why so many of their officers have misconduct allegations against them. An interesting spin that we will come back to in just a second. It's worth noting that of the 157 live investigations into Essex police officers in January 2023, 17 have been net told they have no case to answer, but 86 are very much ongoing. Meanwhile, Two other police forces, Staffordshire and Bedfordshire, have proportionately more officers officially under investigation for alleged sexual misconduct than the Met. The Guardian noted that Staffordshire's figures included some cases where an investigation was no longer active due to the force's recording system, which is, quote, which it is, quote, working to resolve. Now, this ties back into the point spuriously raised by Essex police, and they might have been using it to explain away their appalling numbers of officers being investigated for misconduct, but still remains. Why do police forces across England and Wales have such different metrics and processes for investigating misconduct within their ranks? Well, The Guardian quotes Andy George, president of the National Black Police Association. When there are more than 40 different models of policing across England and Wales, there is no consistency, which is a major challenge in itself. George's testimony also goes on to suggest, as is anecdotally acknowledged, that there is a culture of underreporting and under-investigation of misconduct within policing. The Guardian added this. While figures show that just three investigations were underway during the period concerned into allegations of racism in the police service of Northern Ireland, George said his own experience of that force was that one-third of all minority ethnic officers had reported experiencing or witnessing racism, which very much suggests that other figures, if we extrapolate, are likely just the tip of the iceberg. And we know this to be true because these stories are only just coming out now about people like Dave Carrick and... Stansburg in Devon and Cornwall. Dave, thinking about this institutionally, why is it important to understand that problems in policing go beyond just the Met and London?
1: I want to just go back to that previous question about um, institutionalised racism in the NHS. I mean, there, there is institutionalised racism inside the NHS and I think we have to face up to that and we have to deal with that and there are fantastic people dealing with inside the NHS. I work in an environment where I'm proud to be surrounded by people from all over the planet, whether they were born here or whether they've come here, they're welcome here. The NHS was built on the back of black workers and white workers combining together and it's being defended by it now. If you look at our doctors and our nurses and etc, etc. These are institutions that we should fight to preserve and we should actually, you know, like, you know, value the the contributions that all of these different um, ethnicities make to our NHS and the fabric of our society. But with the police, I mean, it is just what you've read out there is just sickens me. You know, you sit, we sit day after day after day listening to these Bad apple stories, bad apple stories, bad apple stories, bad apple stories. It's a rotten barrel. And it's about power, isn't it? It's about power and the abuse of power and what that power is eventually going to be wielded out for. I can't speak to why there are discrepancies across the forces in terms of their reporting. But what I can say say, and what I can see is that this is the police. You know, this is 21st century policing and it is rotten to the core. It is absolutely rotten to the core. Raping a woman on duty. I mean, what can you say to that? What can you say to that other than, you know, I think we've got real problems in our society now where we cannot face up to institutionalised racism. The government can't even, you know, when you've got someone like Suella Braverman giving cover to the most heinous racism that we're seeing in our country you know spearheaded the attacks on the asylum seekers feedback feed, feeds back out into the rest of our society and the attitudes of people in power in the police then abusing that power um i you know I, what can i say i think we're going to need a revolution the way we approach policing in this country but it is rotten to the core rotten to the core i
0: always think it's really fascinating when you look at the original principles devised by Robert Peel, not an ethical man himself at all, um, when he was trying to found the modern police force. And you look at the nine Peelian principles of policing, they have never once been adhered to, not, not when they were testing them out in Ireland and beating all the locals, not as the modern police force developed into what we know it today. Uh, there has never been such a thing as an ethical police force as defined by its very creator. And I, I think it's fascinating now that it, again and again and again, The state attempts to convince us that, no, this time will be different, right down to the idea that the Met can simply change its name and all will be forgotten and suddenly they'll be brand new. Uh, The entire structure is set up to be abused. Let's move on to the next story for now. Local elections are going to be held in England on the 4th of May. May the 4th be with you. But it's not looking good for the Tories. In fact, it is looking so bad that Tory chair Greg Hands isn't even trying to hide it.
6: In terms of the local elections, these will be fought principally on local issues. We've got some... There's a huge number of Conservative councillors up for re-election in a few weeks' time. Uh, The Conservatives remain the largest party of local government. Um, The independent expectations are that Labour... Uh, the Conservatives will lose more than 1,000 seats mm-hmm. and that Labour need to make big gains. That is what the expectation is out there. OK. But I've been up and down the country, the Conservatives are fighting really hard. I've got some great councillors. You're,
1: councils you're, you're, you're predicting a
3: 1,000 seat loss or are you just trying to uh, massage our expectations here? Uh, that is what the independent
6: experts, uh, Professors Rallings and Thrasher, uh, John Curtis, are all predicting. Uh, I'm okay. saying we are fighting really hard. I've got some great councillors, great council candidates up and down the country i have been travelling up and down the country the last couple of weeks, all the way from Ramsgate to Hartlepool, from Accrington to, to Worcester, campaigning.
0: Yes, the Tories could be doing some expectation management here, trying to make a less bad result next month, look positive against a dire prediction. But there's still good reasons to think they're going to take a real hit. Recent YouGov polling puts Labour 17 points ahead of the Tories. If there was a general election tomorrow, Labour would take 44% of the vote, while the Tories would take just 27%. Of course, Westminster is one thing, local councils another, but a quick look at the kinds of candidates the Tories have been selecting shows they have bypassed the bottom of the barrel some time ago. Andrew McBride is a former regional organiser for the BNP and yet he was selected as a Tory candidate for Bracknell Council. On his Twitter account, he allegedly wrote this. Muslims haven't done anything to improve Britain other than R-word it. While a BNP member, he is alleged to also have justified the party by saying this. We are not a racist party, colour or religion is not important to us, but we feel that British people are not getting enough access to housing and jobs. McBride has now been suspended from the Conservative parties, but because the Tories didn't do their due diligence, he'll still be on the ballot as a Tory at next month's election. Moving swiftly on. There's another councillor, Derek Bullock, of Bolton Council. He was elected in 2019 and re Tories for, by the Tories for next month's elections. Except he's now been expelled from the party after he was accused of posting a litany of racist comments on social media. He's alleged to have written this comment under a BBC News post about the Manchester bombing. You can see it there at the bottom. Shoot the P words on the spot. And The Mirror reports this. In March 2020, he faced a disciplinary action after it was alleged an article from an anti-Muslim activist, Jihad Watch, had been posted on his Facebook. In response to an article about former party chair, Baroness Saeed Awasi, he reportedly added, she's been a cuckoo in the nest. And in another post from February 2015, he was shown to have shared a news article with the headline, Number of Muslim children in England and Wales doubles in a decade. Adding the comment, the clock is ticking. God, it makes you sick, doesn't it? Conservative leader of Bolton Council, Martin Cox, defended Mr. Bullock, saying this It is a total fake. There is no truth in it at all. It is a complete fake a Rooney. I'm absolutely confident on it. Fake a Rooney. Have some dignity. My God. This is a version of a Tory leaflet that has been used by Tory candidates across South Ribble. I want to draw your attention to point five on the blue sidebar. They claim that the Tories have taken the council, quote, from debt-free to debt-ridden. At least you can't accuse them for once of lying. With candidates like these, who needs enemies? Dave, will you be voting in the local elections and how do you think (laughs) the Tories will do next month?
1: Well, I hope they get smashed, and obviously they're playing around with voter identity at the moment. But I think, look, we—I mean, I think, I think we've—we've we've got to realise. My real worry is this. I mean, I think the Tories are going to get wiped out, and I think Labour will, will get into power in the local elections. And, and the only word you can talk to, uh, you know, use when talking about the kind of candidates that they're. Using uh, areas, scum, and when you look at the bottom of the barrel, I mean that was Johnson sitting in. I mean these are the kind of, like Hancock ran the pandemic, Johnson ran the pandemic. These people are thick as you know, not capable, arrogant, all of these things, and the real dregs now coming out. You know that you're seeing these racists. But I think that we've we've got to put people on notice. It's not good enough just to get rid of the Tories and get Labour in now. If you look at the, the responses we got from West Street and uh, uh, not just over this issue, but over lots of issues now, we can't afford to stand down. I mean, my real concern is this, is if we get Labour in and Labour don't deliver the changes for working people that they deserve, a decent NHS, decent education, you know, like getting people out of poverty, um, then the kind of scum that you've seen being um, brought into the Conservative Party may be coming back in force. I mean, we've seen our right wing, this government's gone in the last, um, you know, in in the last 13 years, shifting to the right at a rate of knots, absolutely horrifically shifting to the right. I mean, look at what they're doing with asylum seekers. It's just mind-blowing. If Labour can't deliver... Um, then, you know, the only line in the sand is going to be us ordinary working people. And I think that's why it's so important now, um, not just to to rely on elections to get rid of the Tories or waiting for Labour. We need to defend our NHS now, our education system now, our asylum seekers now. We need to actually start mobilising this country to defend against, against the kind of horror shows that you've just been exhibiting. Otherwise, these racist scum that we see in the police force will be out doing what they're really employed to do, which is knocking the shit out of us with their batons when we take to the streets to fight back against them.
0: Now, these local elections will be the first to require photographic voter ID for people who want to have their democratic voice heard. But that is a development that's proved pretty undemocratic Because working class people, older people, students, black, Asian and other minority ethnic voters are all amongst the groups who are going to likely find it harder to cast their ballots. While councils have warned that the checks required could overwhelm the number of election staff they have on hand, while also costing a fortune that those councils do not have to implement them. Still, the three convictions of vote impersonation made in the last seven years definitely make this policy worth it, and has absolutely nothing to do with the Tories tilting the table, nay, overturning it, completely in their favour. In order to vote in England, you will need one of these forms of ID passport a driver's license a blue badge an older person's bus pass a disabled person's bus pass an oyster 60 plus card a freedom pass a biometric immigration document a ministry of defense form 90 a defense identity card or a national identity card issued by an eea state if you don't have one of these forms of id then you will need to apply for a voter authority certificate and you can do that until the 25th of april for local elections so do it, and also don't forget you also have to register to vote, and you have until midnight tonight, the seventeenth of April, to do that. You can find out more on your local council's webpage. Dave, voter ID. Hey, there you go. You've got yours.
1: Listen, I can just keep handing that out to people at the uh, you know at the polling booth if they want to use mine afterwards. I mean, all bald, all blokes my age, bald white. We all look the bleeding same anyway, so we'll get away with that.
0: I'm just going to say for clarification, this is a joke and the Tories, please oh, do not use joke. that to further bring in more strident voter ID rules <laughs> or accuse the public population at large of it's voter fraud, which doesn't exist on the scale they are claiming. I think that's it for tonight's show. Well, uh, Dave, <laughs> thank you so much for such a lively and insightful presence. It's been wonderful.
1: It's, it's been immense to be your understudy
0: never my understudy what did I say this is non hierarchical and thank you everyone so much for watching this evening and for giving me the sin of not being Michael please do click the link in the YouTube description box below to head to our podcast feed leave a little review hit follow come back to this channel tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm but for now you have been watching Navara Media good night
3: this broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media go to novaramedia.com slash support.